All right, guys, my name is Jordan. If I haven't met you yet, we are continuing the book of Genesis. Uh, So if you have a Bible, I'd love it if you'd flip it open to Genesis 17. We'll be flying around in it, but feel free to kind of look through the stories as we go. We'll go Genesis 17 through 22 and then buckle up, especially next week. If you think that's long, get ready for next week. We're going to start flying through Genesis. Um, But hey, I want to encourage you to start reading Genesis devotionally along with this sermon series. Um, Genesis at first can be confusing, like all great literature is, right? Like you don't read the Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne and go, oh yeah, I got it, I figured it out, right? It's, it's confusing at first, but the more you read it, the more you think about it and process it, the more you begin to understand and it starts to become beautiful. And I think the book of Genesis is like that and I'm starting to pick up more and more on the storyline the more that I think about it. And, and it's starting to impact my life more. And so I think as we start to fly through Genesis, I want you to catch the specific storyline that we're following. And that will help you understand what God's trying to tell you through this incredible work of literature. So the storyline of Genesis is about one specific family. Now, now Genesis is a historical narrative, and like all good history, it's edited to try and tell you a story about what happened during that time period. Now imagine that I was giving you a history of, say, the last 500 years of the world, and in that history, I only told you about one random family in Montana. Either I'm a really bad historian, or that family in Montana is very important. And you actually could summarize all that happened in that 500 years of history through that family story. Here's what I'm saying is the book of Genesis is like that. It's zooming in. It goes from the the grand narrative of the cosmos down to one specific family in a couple chapters. And God is not a bad historian. (laughs) That's not an accident. He does that intentionally because in that family, he will tell us the main themes of the story that we need to understand. And in fact, it's not just the narrative of the book of Genesis, but it's the narrative of the entire Bible. So let me give you a summary. When you're reading the Bible, guys, the Bible is not just a collection of sort of moral sayings. It's one unified narrative work across time periods and authors, but it's telling one story throughout all the scriptures. So when you're in the Bible, this is the story that you're looking for. Let me give you a one-sentence summary of what the Bible is about. The Bible is about God's plans to rescue and bless a rebellious world through Abraham's family. That's the storyline that we're following. And a primary way that he does that is through making promises and then backing up those promises. So let me show you this in the text. Genesis 17, 6 through 8. This is God showing up to Abraham and saying, I will make you an exceedingly, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for, every, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So this is unprompted in the story of Genesis. So here's what I mean by that is Abraham did not sort of pray to God and say, hey God, can you reveal yourself to me and tell me what you're doing? God just shows up and starts making promises. 
which is staggering in the storyline. Imagine if I did that to you. So I show up to your house, I knock on your door, you open up the door, and I go, I will be with you forever. I will never leave you or forsake you. In fact, I want to give you my house, and I drove my car over here. Here's the keys. I want you to take my car, take everything that I have. You'd be a little freaked out, but you'd also be excited, right? But, but it's, it's odd because typically the only time you make sort of extravagant promises like that is when you actually owe a debt to someone. Here's what I mean. When, when you hurt someone, what do you do? Hey, I promise you that I'll never do that again. Or I promise you I'll make that up to you. But here's what's so interesting about this is that not only is God not in debt to us, does he not owe us anything, but we are actually in debt to him. And his solution to our debt to him is for him to promise to give us everything that we would never give him. So here's what we'll see over and over again in this section of Genesis is that God is a promise maker and then he's a provider. There's those rhythms all throughout this story and specifically in this one as he shows up, he makes promises and he always, always, always comes through. So I want to give you just a flyover of this section of Genesis. Okay, we, we obviously can't hit anywhere close to all of the details, not even all of the stories but let me give you just a flyover, and I want you to look for God's promise and his provision. So chapter 17, what I just read to you, God shows up and he makes promises to Abraham. And in fact, God changing Abram, Abram's name to Abraham is part of his promise. So here's what Abraham means. It means father of multitudes, father of nations. Which can you imagine Abraham going back to his buddies and saying, hey, I just got this new name, Abraham, because at this point, he has one son through an illegitimate relationship. That's not exactly a multitude of nations. So you got to imagine they're talking behind Abraham's back a little bit as he's giving himself the name or as he's claiming God gives me, gives me this name that I will, I will produce a multitude of nations but he's a 100-year-old man with a barren wife. It seems odd, right? There's this tension between what God has promised him and what it seems like is possible. That's chapter 17. Chapters 18 and 19 are, are famous for the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and those, those stories are famous for the wrath and judgment of God. Now, that is true that these are absolutely stories about God's anger towards sin and the consequences of rebellion against him. But I think it's actually a miss to read that story primarily through that lens. The judgment of God is context for what the main point of the story is, which is God's faithfulness to Lot essentially as a personal favor to Abraham. So Abraham prays to God, hey God, would you save the righteous in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? And he's essentially negotiating with God and God just weirdly listens. And Abraham negotiates God all the way down to just 10 righteous people in the city because Abraham essentially wants God to save his nephew Lot. And so this story is about how will God save Lot from the impending judgment. And some of you might know this story is there's these angelic visitors that visit Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. And all of the men of the city come to the door and they're pounding on the door because they want to have sex with these visitors. 
It's this wicked act of a lack of of hospitality and care for these people that have come to their city. And Lot does have this moment of faith where he stands up for his visitors, but it goes poorly and they end up saving him. And, And because of this wickedness in the city, there's about to be judgment coming down. Let's pick it up, Genesis 19, verses 13 through about 16. These are these visitors talking to Lot. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. Pay attention to that. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. Here's the picture, is there's this coming judgment about to come down on the city, and these angels representing God are warning Lot, you have to get out, you and your family, get out now, but Lot lingers. He's standing in the middle of the coming judgment that God has warned him about and is trying to save him from, but he's lingering because he's thinking about his life that he'll have to leave behind in Sodom. He's thinking about his family that will refuse to come with him, and he's unsure which of those things he'll listen to, the the promise of God to save him or his own desires to live out the life that he had been living. Does that sound familiar? We can judge Lot and the the characters in the Old Testament for their lack of faith, but this is our exact situation, that God has warned us about the consequences of our sin, has offered us a way out, but how often do we linger as we wonder what it will cost us in order to inherit that salvation? How often do we hesitate as we think about not what God is offering us, but what we would have to give up to access it? But look at the mercy of God, is that even though Lot has wavered, he's shown the smallest inkling of faith. And so what does God do? Grabs him by the hand and pulls him out of the city. That even in your imperfect lingering and your doubts, the smallest step of faith towards him, God will see and he will grant that to you and he will pull you out of the coming judgment by his mercy. That's what his grace looks like. Chapter 20, Abraham does the thing again. You know that thing where he pretends like his wife is his sister? It just seems like this hasn't been going well for him. He's back to the old game. And so he pretends like his wife is his sister. It goes poorly, and this Philistine king takes Sarah as his wife, but God intervenes and sends Abimelech a dream and says, hey, don't touch this woman because she's actually Abraham's wife, not his sister. So God comes through and rescues Sarah and Abraham, and in the process, this promised line, chapter 21, there's been incredible tension to this point because God has promised them that they will have a son through which God will save the world. But they're 100 years old and no son is coming. But in chapter 21, God brings a son to a 100-year-old man and a barren 90-year-old woman. Isaac is born, a miraculous birth that will eventually save humanity. So here's what we see throughout those texts is there's the promise of God and then there's this gap where it seems like God won't come through. 
And in the meantime, human beings freak out. And sometimes they demonstrate faith, but usually they demonstrate fear and doubt. At best, they're inconsistent, but God is always consistent, and he always comes through in spite of all of the apparent odds against him. He promises, and then he provides. And by the way, this promise to Abraham to bless the world through his heir has come all the way down 4,000 years later to you, where if you trust in Jesus, you access this same promise that God made to Abraham to bless him in order to be a blessing to the world. So you now are in the same spot that Abraham was, where God promises things to you and you live in that gap where it looks like he is not going to come through and the question is, is will you believe? Here's what I wanna show you is that God provides even when his people doubt. God provides even when his people doubt and fail. Let's go back to chapter 17. Verse 17, God again is, is he's making promises to Abraham. Verse 17, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Let's, let's pop back to that first sentence. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, God makes a promise, Abraham laughs in God's face, feels bad, you know? Just doesn't seem like a great option for your life to laugh at God, but how much do you relate to that? Here, here's essentially what Abraham says in response to God when he says, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Abraham's essentially saying, hey, God, can we just get practical here? I know you want to do this supernatural thing where you come through for me in this amazing way that I never could come through for myself, but I've got this illegitimate son, Ishmael. Can you just sort of use him? It's not very practical to make these promises. I've got my own way that we can get this done. Where do you tend to look at God and say, hey, can we get practical? What are the promises that he makes to you? Maybe they're about your status, your standing with him, that he's removed your sins as far as the east is from the west. Come on, God, get practical. I don't know if that's real. I, I feel that gap between us. I feel like my sins are held against me. Or, or the promise that he'll use you for his kingdom in this world, that you will be his vessel to bring his good news to all of the people in your life. Come on, God, that, I don't know. I don't know how to talk to my coworkers. I, I don't think you can talk about God at work. I, I, let's get practical. Is there a different way? We tend to act like this, but here's the good news. What is God's response to Abraham's doubts, Abraham and Sarah's doubts? He just comes through anyway. He just keeps being faithful. So when I'm watching a sporting event, I have no idea how to not root for one team. Like, I just can't handle it. Like, even if I don't care, I have a sophisticated algorithm in my head through which I will discover which team I should be rooting for. I, I won't get into it, okay, but there's a lot of factors. How will it affect the teams that I care about? How will it just affect my emotional state? What do I need right now, like a sure bet, or do I need the underdog story? You know, there's a lot that goes into it. Um, 
but I have to root for a team because what if I don't root for anybody and then the team that I should have been rooting for loses? Like, that's on me, you know? So, so during the Super Bowl, I mean, I don't, I don't care, right? But through my algorithm, I conclude that I'm, I was rooting for the Chiefs, right? And so for those of you that were rooting for the Chiefs, do you start to freak out a little bit when they got down 10 in the fourth quarter? Because I did. Uh, I concluded, and again, I'm very emotional at this point for inexplicable reasons, but I conclude that the Chiefs have no chance of coming back. They're down 10. It's just not going to happen, which is actually a very illogical conclusion because they always come back from down 10 or more. But I conclude there's just no way that this is happening. And what happened? The Chiefs came back and won. And I was genuinely shocked because I had concluded that they weren't going to win. My faith was out. So I could not believe that it went against it, right? So there's a piece of this that feels like my faith actually affects the results, like, like when I start to lose faith, it's like they're going to call up Patrick Mahomes, the quarterback of the Chiefs, and be like, hey, Patrick, we've got some bad news for you. Jordan in Minneapolis is doubting. <laughs> and so, so Pat's just going to be like, well, I guess we can't keep going. He's just going to take a knee. Game over. Right? No. The amount of faith that I do or do not have does not affect the outcome of the game. Or if you're not a sports fan, God is not like Santa in Elf. Where at the end of the story, he sort of needs to muster up some Christmas cheer because he can't fly without it, right? So he's got to get his followers all riled up. And just if you would just believe, then I could fly. God is not sort of trying to get his followers riled up with faith so that he can have enough power to do things in the world. That's not how God works. The amount of faith that you have does not affect his faithfulness. He is faithful regardless of your faith. You're not causing his power. He is powerful. So it's all about the object of your faith, not the consistency of your faith. So when you doubt, just don't freak out. Your doubts are irrelevant to the goodness of God. God is good. You're okay. But some of you are saying, I don't doubt God, I doubt me. I know God comes through, but I can't come through. I want you to listen to Romans 4, which is a commentary on Abraham's life in Genesis. Romans 4.2 says this, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Okay, so to summarize, God did not promise Abraham out of a debt to Abraham as if Abraham had done a lot of good work for him and God now owed him his wages. The promise is not dependent on our performance. It's dependent on God's provision. So so I want you to just think about this and put this into the context of your life. Like when you're tempted to believe that your screw-ups and your failures and your shortcomings will derail the plans of God in your life, Can I just point out that 4,000 years ago, God made this promise to Abraham, and it's still with us today because he never failed. And human beings have failed a lot since then. But God made his promise. 
And he has intricately and masterfully orchestrated all of human history to the most minute detail in order to bring the good that he promised to you. He has watched human beings systematically ruin his world, and he has never given up on them. To the point that he would watch as his son, his one and only son, is murdered so that he could resurrect him. And that in the resurrection, he would put the defibrillator pads on the collective heart of every believing person and shock them back into resurrected life. All of his promises come through all the time. He never fails. Little you, with your little sins, will not derail that 4,000-year-old promise. Your sins are like a forest fire. Okay, they are actually very destructive. Don't hear me say that they don't matter. The way you live does matter. And, and when you don't follow the plans of God, it's destructive in your life. And at times, it can even look like it's killed off all life, like a forest fire that has torn through a forest. But here's what's often true of forest fires. And w- when it looks like there's absolutely no life left, often new life will spring out of the ashes of that destruction. And not only that, but will it grow back stronger and more fire resistant than it ever was? That's what's true of you and your screw-ups and your failures, is yes, it affects your life. Yes, it can have devastating consequences on your life. But if you are in Christ, life will spring up out of those ashes, and you will come back stronger than ever because God will not let you down. God provides even when his people doubt. Secondly, or or the means by which he does that is by providing a lamb. Genesis 22, one of the most famous stories in all of scripture. Genesis 22, one through two. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. In those couple sentences, you immediately have one of the most pressure-packed, horrific scenes in all of the Bible. This story is not a myth. It's not just a story. This happened. A father was asked to sacrifice his child. If you're a parent, you feel that with a unique weight. God is asking Abraham for the thing that he values and loves the most. And this is the question that God is asking of Abraham, is Abraham, do you trust me? Do you trust my character in any circumstance? And if you follow Jesus, that is the question that God will ask you. When your kid gets sick, when the cancer diagnosis comes, when the doubts and the fears pile up, when you were supposed to be influential for the kingdom of Jesus and it feels like you're wasting your life, God will ask you, do 
trust me? And this is Abraham's answer to God. Yes, I trust you. And how do we know that that's his answer? Is it because he verbalizes it? No, it's because he goes. It's because he acts. God tells Abraham to walk up a mountain and sacrifice his son, and Abraham starts walking towards the mountain. The way you live is evidence of what you believe. You can say all of you want, all that you want about your trust and your faith in God, but when it gets to those moments in your life, will you act? Will you believe? Will you trust? Abraham, for three days, walked with his son to a mountain, thinking that he would have to kill his son, and he did not turn back. And so the narrative all builds up to the section in verse 6 where Isaac is carrying the wood that he would eventually be laid on up the mountain with his father. And and the narrative covers three stories in, in a couple sentences, but then it zooms into one specific conversation in those three stories because it wants us to pay attention to the content. Verse six, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hands the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Do you feel like the the deep irony and darkness and tension of that moment? How do you tell your kid that he is the lamb? Abraham said, God will provide. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. We're back to the gap. The gap between the promise of God and the provision of God. God promised that through this kid, he would fulfill all of his promises to Abraham, that this kid was supposed to be the hope of the world. But in this moment, it feels like God is going back on everything that he promised to Abraham. And Abraham and Isaac are living in the tension of that gap. And you, for most of your life as a believer, will live in that tension of that gap. Where it will feel like God is not coming through for you. And your temptation will be not only to doubt and lack faith, but at times to accuse God. To believe that he's not just because of the place that he's allowing you to live. I remember hearing of this this illustration of something that a shepherd has to do for their sheep is they have to actually pick them up at times and dunk them in this liquid that's essentially a a fungicide, antibacterial, and it it, uh, keeps flies away. So essentially it makes the sheep's life better and potentially saves its life. So the shepherd in the moment is dunking that sheep in the liquid out of love, but what does the sheep think is happening? The sheep thinks it's drowning. The way that Tim Keller puts it is like this, in order for God to save you, sometimes it will feel like he's killing you. That's what the gap feels like. But here's the thing, Abraham has learned. He's learned that God will always come through 
He's learned that saying no to God in favor of his own rationalizations for his behavior is not actually a good life, but is foolish. And so he keeps walking up the mountain. And look, this isn't blind faith. This is true seeing. What Abraham sees is the supernatural reality that God comes through even when everything looks like it's falling apart. So because Abraham's eyes have been opened to what's real, he keeps walking up the mountain in trust. Will you? Will you keep walking with supernatural eyes to the reality that God is good even when it feels like he's evil? Will you keep walking up the mountain? Abraham walks up the mountain and he stands over his son with a knife held in the air. Like this is a real person. What happened in this moment? Did he scream? Did he cuss? Did he vomit? Like what's going through his mind? He stands with his knife over his son, but before Abraham can bring the knife down, God provides like he always does. And a voice comes out from heaven and he says, Abraham, stop. And Abraham looks up and he sees a ram caught in a bush. And Isaac gets up off the altar and the ram goes down on the altar in his place. God comes through and saves Isaac. So quick question, where did this hero of the faith come from? This is Abraham who kept doing the thing. You know, the thing where he treats his wife like his sister. This is Abraham who who lacked faith who in a lot of ways was a horrible example of what it means to follow God. Where did this person of faith come from? Real quick, I want to read to you chapter 18, verse 19. This is why God makes the promise to Abraham, for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. The purpose of God's promise was to transform Abraham into a person of righteousness and justice who would pass along that righteousness and justice to his children. See, the point of the promise is not only forgiveness, but it's transformation. The promise, when you live in it, will transform your life and conform you into the image of the promise maker. Abraham started as a lost pagan who knew nothing of God and God showed up and started making promises and here he is, an old man at the end of his life who thoroughly trusts God and believes and obeys and he's a picture of righteousness because of the promise of God. And Abraham wasn't the only one that gets renamed. You know that you in Christ have been been renamed. You are called a saint by God, which when you first come to know Jesus is laughable, as laughable as it was when Abraham was renamed. But over the course of your life, by the promise of God and trusting in him, he will transform you into your name. That promise, God will provide for you and he will turn you into what he said he would turn you into. That's how Abraham became this man of faith. But the tendency is to stop there. A lot of other world religions, a lot of the way that Christians have interpreted this text throughout history would be to look at it and say, look at this amazing faith of Abraham. We should have faith like Abraham. But this story is not primarily about the faith of a man. It's primarily about the promise of a lamb. The name of the hill that Abraham and Isaac walked up was Moriah. God will provide. 
What Abraham didn't know was that the altar that he built on that hill that day was not the only altar that would ever be built there. Because later, the temple in Jerusalem would be built on that same mountain. The altar of the people of God would be built in the hills of Moriah. About 2,000 years later, another father-son duo would walk up that same mountain. God the Father would walk with his son, Jesus Christ, up the hill of Moriah to perform a sacrifice. The hill once called Moriah was now called Golgotha or Calvary. And like Isaac, Jesus would carry the killing wood up the hill. And Abraham held the knife over his son because God commanded him to. But by no compulsion other than his own desire to save you, God would hold the killing knife over his son, his only son, the son that he loved. But it's here that the similarities between the two stories end because where there would be a voice coming from heaven to stop Abraham from dropping the knife on that day on Calvary when Jesus hung on a cross, there was no voice that came from heaven to tell God to stop and God dropped the knife on his son. Why? Because he promised you. He promised you that he would make a way for you back to God and this was the only way. And God always comes through on his promises. He promised you, and so then he provided. And Isaac was lifted off the altar so that Jesus, the lamb, could be laid down on the altar. You were lifted off of the altar so that the providing lamb of God could be laid down in your place. Because you see, this isn't a story about Abraham demonstrating all that he would do for God. It's a story about God demonstrating all that he would do for Abraham. The primary question is not, what will you do for God? What will you sacrifice for God? But the question is, what will you do when you see a God who would sacrifice all for you? What will you do with a God like that? Will you trust him? Romans eight thirty two. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for coming through on your promises, even when we fail. Thank you that our doubts don't derail your faithfulness. And most of all, Jesus, thank you for willingly walking up that mountain for us. Thank you, God, for not holding back the knife, but dropping it so that we could live. Help us to believe. If you would give us that, if you would give us your son, there's nothing in the world that you wouldn't give us. There's no single way that you wouldn't provide for us. And so when we're living in the tension between the promise and the provision. Help us to believe. Help us to trust. And even when we don't, we trust you to come through. Amen.